Hello, everyone. I hope you are having a wonderful day. My name is Dwayne Osplund, and this is the Addicted Mind podcast, and we are on to another episode. I have a wonderful guest today, Dr. Paul Kenny. He is a Ward Coleman professor, chair of the Nash Family Department of Neuroscience, and a research scientist with Cure Addiction Now, CAN, a nonprofit that funds groundbreaking research to help people overcome substance use disorder. Dr. Kenny also serves as the director of the Drug Discovery Institute at the Icon School of Medicine. His multidisciplinary research involves the study of behavioral paradigms, physiological analyses, and the molecular underpinnings of neurobehavioral disorders. Dr. Kenny is actively investigating the brains of rodents to uncover new signaling cascades that may play a role in addiction-like behaviors. His research lab, the Kenny Laboratory, is focused on understanding the neurobiological mechanisms of drug addiction, obesity, and schizophrenia, with an emphasis on the role of nicotinic acetylcholine receptors in these processes. They employ a multidisciplinary approach that includes complex behavioral paradigms, physiological analyses, and molecular biological techniques. Current projects include the utilization of vector-based delivery systems to modify gene expression in the brains of rodents to identify novel signaling cascades that may play a role in addiction-like behaviors. I was so excited to have Dr. Kenny on this podcast to talk about some of his research, because in some of this, he's talking about how semaglutides, which you might have heard of, of like Ozempic, Wagovi, some of these medications that are GPL-1 inhibitors might be used to help with substance use disorder through controlling cravings and motivation. We go into the science behind that possibility. It's really exciting research. It's showing a lot of promise, especially around alcohol use disorder. Some of these medications that were first discovered for diabetes have showed extreme promise in obesity. And now they're showing more promise in alcohol use disorder. And he's going to talk about some of the science of that and how that all comes together and impacts the motivational centers of the brain and why controlling these cravings really is the first step to recovery. So it's really exciting research. I'm so glad that he came on and was willing to talk about this to really help people find some of this groundbreaking research to help cure addiction. So I hope you find this episode really interesting and get a lot out of it as much as I did. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, leave us a review. It really does help people find the podcast and join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I am excited to have Paul Kenny with me. We are going to talk about some really cool research that's being done. And Paul, I'm just going to jump right in and have you introduce yourself. And we're going to get into this topic because this is really fascinating to me. Yes, indeed. I'm delighted to participate, to be involved. My name is Paul Kenny. I'm the chair of the Nash Family Department of Neuroscience at Mount Sinai here in New York. I'm also the director of the Drug Discovery Institute, so very much interested in the development of novel therapeutics, particularly for drug addiction. All right. First, let's get to know you a little bit. What got you into this field? What got you into neuroscience and wanting to do this kind of work and digging into this? Oh, well, I've always been fascinated since I was a kid and how the brain worked, how it works. I mean, what a mysterious organ. It controls pretty much everything about us. So 
I remember being very young and very curious about the brain. So it was always kind of an ambition, a goal of mine to try and understand the brain. But originally, I thought I'd be a clinician. I, I really had ambitions to become a psychiatrist, which is fully oh. my intent. And so I, I, I completed my undergraduate degree at Trinity College Dublin and then was about to go to med school to become a, a psychiatrist. But I took a year off and I ended up working in a psychiatric hospital in Dublin. And I have to confess, I was, um, I was a little bit, I guess, surprised by the dearth of interventions we had to help people who were suffering from neuropsychiatric right, yeah problems. And I found it really just, I will confess, I found it dispiriting. I, I was really surprised how in this modern age of medicine, can we not have effective medications? And that really just com completely changed my mind about what I plan to do with my career. And I immediately start applying for graduate programs to try and just understand how the brain works, particularly in the context of neuropsychiatric disorders, to try and be involved, to try and contribute and hopefully get something into the patients that suffer from these disorders to help them. And that's really been my goal since then. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense because it, it can be really disheartening to see these people suffering and, and we don't know what we can do to help them get better. And, and it can be it can be really hard to be able to walk through that and, and see that. So that's awesome that you dug into this. So we're going to talk about a particular drug today that I think is kind of all over the place and people are talking about it. <laughs> it's all in the news. We're going to talk about it a little bit differently because we're looking at, at it from an addiction perspective. So let's jump in and start talking about this. How did you start to find this and start to look at it? Yeah, we've been interested in the GLP-1 system, which, of course, is the system that the drugs we're talking about today is, is kind of targeting. We got interested in that many years ago. In fact, it was one of the first projects that we started up in my lab when I started my own lab. I had a really talented graduate student, Louis Tuesta, and another fantastic postdoc, Christy Fowler, who, as we were chatting about brain systems that may be involved in regulating the motivational properties of addictive drugs. We got interested in GLP-1 because there was a few papers published when we we're considering this, suggesting that GLP-1 secreting neurons may synapse onto neurons in the hypothalamus that are taught to play an important role in driving drug craving, drug seeking behaviors. Yet we knew really very little about GLP-1 signaling in the brain at that point. And so that was one of the systems that we decided to focus on in parallel with a few other systems because we had no guarantees at that stage that we'd get anything interesting. And but you thought it had something to do with like the motivations. And just so everybody knows, this uh, people have probably heard about this. This is like Ozempic, Wagovi. Those are the the brand names that that people hear all about. It's it's all in the news, and so people are hearing. I just want them to know when we're talking about those GLP one inhibitors. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, when you think about GLP-1, I think most people who would be familiar with the system would think about the fact that GLP-1, this hormone, is secreted from the gut when you consume a meal, whenever your, your gut stretches. And then that basically does a whole bunch of things relevant to food intake. One of the things it does is it basically enhances insulin secretion. So it can help you deal with the increase in blood glucose that will occur after you digest food, soon, you know, as you're digesting food. But there's other things that happen, like you're, you're told maybe you should stop eating because your gut is beginning to distend, so does appetite suppression, etc. So they're all really important actions of GLP-1. That's why drugs that mimic its actions and stimulate its actions have been developed. But there's also some neurons in the brain that also produce GLP-1. And those neurons are also involved in regulating the same things that peripheral GLP-1 is involved in, 
appetite regulation, blood glucose regulation, metabolism, etc. But you know, one of the things those systems do in the brain is control motivation. And so motivation is ultimately what gets corrupted, if you will, in the context of drug addiction. So that's the perspective we came at this from. Maybe the system that regulates motivation, it's not just food motivation, but perhaps drug motivation. Right, right. Okay, can you talk a little bit more about that, just this motivation system? Because a lot of times when we look at addiction, and I think the old models, and some of this is in our society as well, it's like this is a willpower issue. This is just willpower. You should be in complete control of what choices you make. And what you're saying is that, well, there's something going on in the brain here that gets hijacked or taken over by addiction. And that motivational factor, like you said, is, is corrupted. Can we talk a little bit more about that and, and changing that viewpoint? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the first point that people should consider if you think that some of this is just lack of willpower is the fact that addiction substance use disorders are very strongly influenced by the genetics we carry. So it's not as if you're like, oh, I just, you're kind of weak-willed in the sense that you can't control your drug intake. The very fact that this is written into our genome should already tell us that these behaviors, to some degree and in some individuals, the hard wiring may be influenced or maybe altered that renders us vulnerable. That's a that right off the bat. That's an important kind of flag to suggest this isn't just some random event and people are not controlling themselves in the way that they could or should. That there's deeper biology here, and so the genetics and addiction are unambiguous. The second point I would make very quickly is this same argument has been applied to people who gain weight and become obese. Oh, it's just a matter of not controlling your food intake. Yet these very same drugs. The fact that they work so well in helping people to control their weight, and obesity is also genetically encoded in terms of influences, genetic influences that will increase your vulnerability. These drugs are helping people cope with that. So again, it speaks to the fact that drug use and addiction, overeating and obesity, it's not as simple as just not having the willpower. That there's underlying very strong biological drivers, and we'd be foolish to dismiss those as not being central to these disorders. So the question that's coming to my mind is... They started to develop these drugs and they started to see that people started to lose weight when they took them. And I, I guess people started to ask questions about that. Like, what, what's going on here? This is was supposed to help with insulin resistance, but all these people are losing weight who, who couldn't lose weight before. Who you know struggled. Yes. I mean, I mean, the success rate of weight loss is I, I don't know, it's very, very low. Yes. And uh, here here it is. It's like, what what in the world's going on? Why are all these people losing weight? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, it turns out that the, the drug is doing exactly what it's supposed to do and mimicking GLP-1 systems. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the main reason for developing these drugs is their incredent effect. That is to say that they're, they're able to increase the amount of insulin that's being secreted. So if you're suffering from type 2 diabetes because of weight gain, for example, it is beneficial to increase insulin actions, insulin secretion, and then insulin function. And that's what GLP-1 mimics should and do actually accomplish. But the other things that GLP-1 modulators do, one of the other things they'll do is suppress your appetite. And that makes sense, of course, because after a meal, you really should stop eating. And so if you boost the system, yes, it will be good in terms of helping you control your blood glucose levels, but it will also help you control your appetite by the virtue of the fact that that's what the system has really been designed to do. Right. And so for people maybe struggling with food, this kind of quiets that 
food noise, that it, it doesn't become as as uh, prevalent in their life. Or you're talking about that motivational system that it quiets that down. Yeah, it quells that system, basically, that drive to eat. But it, it's really, it's not just a blanket appetite, appetite suppressant. I mean, you know, the, my take in the literature, at least, is that if you're hungry and you need to eat, if you boost GLP-1 signaling, you're not going to get huge effects on so-called homeostatic eating. In other words, the need to eat to survive and to maintain normal energy balance isn't really impacted. It's rather when you've got to the point where energy homeostasis has been reestablished and you have the calories you now need, that's when GLP-1 modulators in rodents, for example, in preclinical studies, that's when these drugs seem to come into their own. They'll suppress overeating, if you will, or hedonically motivated eating where you're consuming food rich in calories because it tastes good. And so I right. think that's what we're beginning to see in humans where, yes, they're losing weight, but it's not as if people are starving to death. It's not as if they don't have any desire to eat food. It's rather it's helping to reestablish kind of homeostatic control over their consumption where they're eating the amount of food that they need for normal function and not overeating, which may have been contributing to their weight gain beforehand. So they're really interesting systems that they're helping to reestablish homeostasis. Right. And as you were saying earlier, those systems can get corrupted. And I think what's really important to understand in that is, is that when we have that biological drive to do something, I mean, it, it really is all consuming. It's not easy to just turn that off. You know, when, it, yeah. when it's corrupted into that, you know, that's why we have addiction. That's why we have obesity, because it's really, really challenging. I think you're absolutely right. And that, that is exactly how I view addiction. I think many others view it the same way. I mean, there's various symptoms associated with developing a substance use disorder. But really at the heart of the disorder is this maladaptive, pathologically high, if you will, motivation to prioritize getting the drug and consuming the drug above other sources of reinforcement. And the drug assumes unprecedented value to those who suffer from a drug addiction. And of course, many of us now in the field are trying to understand what that means. How does that happen? But ultimately, I think if you want to treat addiction, it comes down to trying to address that unusually high, if you will, value that's placed on obtaining and consuming the drug. And that drug-related memory that's really stamped into the brain that can be there really over the life of the individual after they become addicted, that even if you get on top of the drug use, there's always that vulnerability that the drug becomes, again, very important and you have to keep on using it. Right. So let's let's go a little bit forward. So here's, here are these drugs. They're coming out in the system. They're seeing that people are losing weight. And they're doing it like what you said in a way. It's like they're not just not eating. It, it seems to balance out with the system. It's this hedonic eating, this 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 drive for, I guess food for because it's just tastes good it feels good it it answers all of those questions it's kind of turning that off a little bit and so we start to see that how does it start to move into the world of addiction when we're looking at maybe like alcohol or other drugs how how did that start to happen as we looked at these drugs yeah, I mean, the way I've been thinking about it, and this, of course, could be completely wrong. It's just kind of a simple rule for me, at least, that when I try right. and conceptualize how these drugs may be working is, I think when it comes to drugs abuse, all too often we think about their primary euphorogenic, their pleasurable effects, you know, cocaine, heroin, amphetamine, they can induce very profound states of, of pleasure. And so, right. of course, that's important in establishing 
substance use disorders. You use the drugs, at least initially, because they make you feel good. And then, of course, you can develop dependence on these drugs. And so you feel bad if you don't use them. But also when you're using them, you know, quite often they're used in very ritualistic, very carefully controlled patterns of consumption. And we don't often think about what that means, how those systems are controlled. It's not as if, you know, just keep on smoking a cigarette and you one cigarette after another and it's just uncontrolled all during the day. There is this experience of almost like satiety, very much like consuming right. food, where there's a hunger for food and then you consume a meal and a satiety as you're consuming. And we kind of know a lot about satiety in the context of food. But what does satiety look like in the context of drug use? Can we potentially boost satiety systems so appetite for drug goes down? Is conceptually, potentially, that a way to begin to treat drug addiction if there are these kind of satiety systems for drugs in the brain? And again, we think about reward systems being corrupted by drugs abuse, but our satiety systems playing a role too. And from my perspective, I think that may be what we're seeing with these GLP-1 modulators, that there is potentially a satiety system for drug use, and GLP-1 is involved in that. And we can boost or modulate not necessarily the reward effects, but the satiety you would experience when you're using drugs and turn that up and therefore turn down the desire to use these drugs. So let me make sure I really understand that and, and restate that. So even in drug use, like if you smoke a cigarette, it's not like you're smoking all the time. You just don't stop. You you get a satisfaction from it. But then you also get there's another piece of it that comes after, which is this kind of feeling of satiation, feeling like you've got what you needed. You're good. You're done. And it's it's that feeling in of itself in that kind of cycle of use, I guess, or consumption, I don't know how to call it, what to, what to say it, that that moment there is what you start to turn up faster and quicker so that a person goes, oh, well, I, you know, I don't really need that. I, or I'm done or I don't need as much. Is that, is that, am I saying that right? You've captured it entirely. That's, that's really what we're seeing in our animals in the sense that the ability of these drugs to you know, engage reward systems looks like it's kind of conserved. It's still there. But it looks like other systems in the brain are really sensitive to these drugs. And what we've found, and I think other people are seeing this as well, is some of those other systems are actually involved in telling you not to go and use the drug, but to stop. You've had enough now. And so when you think of satiety, and when you think of eating a meal, this is kind of graded response where you may be really hungry, you eat, and then you get to a point of satiety. But then what happens if you keep on eating? You actually can feel pretty bad and the food can become right. very aversive. And so the idea here is with these systems, what you can do is turn up the satiety circuit so much that using even a little bit of an addictive drug can then become actually aversive, not rewarding, but actually becomes you know, something you don't enjoy. And that's kind of what we're seeing now with these drugs. And people, for example, that consume alcohol, not only does it take away the rewarding effects, people are actually reporting you know, bad experiences with drugs. They're like, oh, I didn't like it anymore. Actually, it made me feel bad. And that's exactly what happens with a meal when you go past satiety and enter the realms of aversion. So how did this start to move into alcohol use disorder? I, I think maybe what I, I think I had seen somewhere about this, that people started who maybe the struggling with obesity started taking this drug. And then they also started finding that they just didn't really want to consume alcohol or it became just not as important. 
Yeah, I mean, that's always wonderful when you get these serendipitous findings from humans. Ultimately, of course, we're developing drugs to treat the human condition. So whenever you get this useful information, it's wonderful. I would say that this speaks to, it's maybe a success story for the preclinical work as well, because, and it's it's not just me trying to say, hey, look, we published this paper, woohoo, we are on the right right track. Right, right, right. The, the models and procedures that we used are those that have been set up over many years in the field. And the types of cell work or rodent work that we would do that we think to some degree at least reflects what's going on in humans who use drugs of abuse. All the animal data suggested that these types of drugs should be beneficial. They should actually do exactly what we're seeing now, at least in some individuals that are using these drugs anecdotally in the sense that they're saying you don't want to use drugs anymore, you're going to use less, and in fact, they may be aversive. So the predictions were already in place. So it's not a huge surprise to see this in humans, and it's very, very gratifying because it suggests we are doing work that may translate and it bodes well for the future. Right. And so you're starting to to see that, and now you're starting to study it and put it into practice and really look at it to see if this is this is what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have people kind of report again, anecdotally, oh, my desire to drink has gone down. But maybe those people have exactly the opposite response and then report that maybe they're drinking more. And I think without carefully controlled human studies, it's you can be kind of swayed by these kind of case studies or a few reports that may not actually stand up in a broader population of people. In fact, may actually be precisely the opposite and drugs like this could actually make addictions worse so it really is crucial that if you're going to use something like these drugs glp1 modulators or enhancers that you do carefully controlled human studies to make sure that the effects are real they're robust and there are no kind of uh, unexpected adverse events and papers are now beginning to come out speaking to exactly that it looks like this is a real event it is, these drugs are beneficial in the context of people who drink and it may actually decrease their appetite to consume alcohol. Wow, that's amazing. So question, semaglutides and GLP-1 inhibitors, are those the same or are we talking different things when we're talking when we use those different terminology? Can you go yeah, into that a little bit? They're actually enhancers, so they will mimic the effects. They're essentially the same thing as GLP-1. So they will still stimu- stimulate GLP-1 receptors. So they will accomplish the same thing that would happen if you're to consume a meal, stretch your gut as a consequence and get GLP-1 secreted from the gut. These drugs basically accomplish the same thing. They stimulate the GLP-1 receptors. The question, of course, many people are asking now is semaglutide, these kind of GLP-1 modulators, are they beneficial for alcohol drinking by an action outside the brain, whereas you know, GLP-1 typically acts if it's secreted from the gut? Or do they need to get into the brain and stimulate directly these brain motivation circuits? And that is unclear at the moment. I mean, there's data out there speaking or suggesting that either could be the case. I think that's going to be a fascinating question going forward. If these drugs are acting to stimulate GLP-1 receptors, that's beneficial in alcohol users or people with other substance use disorders. Where is that occurring? Is it in the brain or is it peripheral? And if it's peripheral, that would be utterly amazing, I think, because it means that if GLP-1 is working, maybe other drugs can work peripherally. And that means we don't need to develop therapeutics that get into the brain, which is very hard to do. We may be able to modulate peripheral processes that could be useful for treating drug addiction. That would be just an amazing observation. 
Yeah, that would be amazing. So what you're saying is that because it uh, stimulates these GLP-1 receptors, then that sends the signal to the brain and gets into the brain. Is that what we're saying? Is that what you're – just to make sure yeah. I'm really clear. And then yeah. – so we're not going to the brain directly, kind of we're going a, a roundabout way to influence this motivation. And is is that correct? Am I, am I understanding you correctly? You've hit the nail on the head. And this is something that people like me who are very focused on like a brain-centric disorder, like addiction you would think of as being, of course, a disorder of motivation circuits in the brain. So very often we just think of the brain in isolation. But of course, the brain is not in isolation. The whole point right. of the brain is to respond to stimuli both inside the body and out in the environment. One of the ways information gets into the brain is via sensory neurons. You've got all these neurons outside the brain that detect various changes in homeostasis and send that information to brain motivation circuits. So there's a whole bunch of sensory gotcha. neurons that actually express GLP-1 receptors too and can respond to GLP-1. Wouldn't it be fascinating if these drugs are actually acting on peripheral sensory neurons? That information goes to the brain and that's important for drug addiction. And wow. we know very little about those that, that type of biology. I mean, there's been some wonderful pioneering work that's been done in this space, but surprisingly few papers. And the reason I even bring this up, again, is because it's so difficult to treat drug addiction under neuropsychiatric disorders. Right, um, yeah. In part because getting drugs into the brain and to hit their target is so difficult. This, raise, this type of data raises the possibility that maybe in some cases we won't need to do that. There's targets outside the brain that are druggable and will actually have clinically beneficial effects. Wow. So I'm going to clarify this again just to make sure. I understand exactly. So we know that these are working. We know that this is changing behavior. We can see that in the data, correct? And then and what you're saying is that by stimulating these neurons, these in maybe in the gut, it sends the the signal to the brain that then says, Hey, you're you're done. You don't need to eat anymore. You know, you're 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 finished. And then you just naturally go, I'm done. And you don't eat anymore. And you don't even have to really think about it. You're not like, okay, how many calories have I had? It's a, you know, it's, it's, I got to calculate that. Okay. I'm calculating I'm done, but my body isn't done. What this does is that this is telling the body that it's done, not the brain. (laughs) Trying to put that in like a practical way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's made it's almost, you might think, almost like the tail wagging the dog in the context of drug addiction, because people use drugs for what they accomplish in the brain, of course. Cocaine increases brain dopamine signaling and signaling from other neurotransmitters. You know, nicotine gets in and stimulates nicotinic receptors. And of course, that's all true. But these drugs can also act peripherally. There's receptors for these drugs that can detect these drugs outside the brain, for example, in the gut, in the cardiovascular system. What does that information actually mean? Is the gut, for example, sensing these drugs? And is that involved not necessarily in the rewarding effects or perhaps rewarding effects? But is it involved in this notion of drug satiety that it's almost like a meal? It's almost like you've consumed food. And then you have these same systems that say exactly what you'd said, which is you've had enough. It's time to stop. And can we tap into those very same gut-based systems are involved in controlling food intake, appetite for food, maybe those same systems are involved in appetite for drug. And I think that's what's really exciting about the GLP-1 system, beyond the fact that it 
could actually be a therapeutic. That'd be amazing. That it speaks to broader biology, other opportunities to understand drug addiction as a disorder, other opportunities to develop new therapeutics based on systems that we don't typically consider in the context of drug addiction. So this is opening up a whole new window of possibility here with how we can help with some of these issues. So what's some of the promising data that we're we're starting to see from this work? Uh, there's been one or two papers that have been published that provide pretty compelling data that these GLP enhancers will decrease craving for alcohol and alcohol consumption in those who suffer from alcohol use disorder. There's also data suggesting that the same is true for in tobacco smokers, at least in some individuals, that drugs that boost GLP-1 signaling will decrease the desire to consume tobacco. And again, both of those events in humans is very consistent with the predictions from rat and mouse studies, which suggest that the effects of GLP-1 enhancers are very strong in the desire for rodents to use these drugs. So it's wonderful to see those effects coming true in human users. And I think that this is really the tip of the iceberg now. We're going to see a lot of studies, a lot of data published in the next few years suggesting that's the case. And in fact, here at Mount Sinai, one thing we're looking to do with the help of Cure Addiction Now, this new foundation that's hoping to you know really intervene and help people with addiction, is to look at GLP-1 modulators in the context of opioid use disorder. Will we see the same right. type of beneficial effect for opioid use as what we're beginning to see now for alcohol use and tobacco smoking? So tell us a little bit about that because you you are doing a clinical trial at Cure Addiction Now. So let's talk about well, let's talk about Cure Addiction Now. What is that? And and then we'll talk about the clinical trial. Yeah, Cure Addiction Now is a new foundation. It's been set up by Nancy Davis, and I think it's absolutely spectacular. I mean Addiction is such a problem in the U.S., throughout the world. And, you know, there's only so much I think governments can really do in terms of providing the the type of support to help us understand what addiction is from a mechanism perspective and to drive new therapeutic development. And so what foundations and other areas of research have been really good at doing is to kind of catalyze the most interesting, unusual, left-field type research, much of which fails and nothing comes from it. But mm-hmm. quite often you get new breakthroughs. And of course, the government only has so much money, resources, the NIH, for example, to invest in addiction research that you, you can't throw resources at all the kind of most left-wing, exciting ideas of our you know, right. out there kind of ideas. And so foundations have been really critical in other areas of biomedical science, other areas of science, in really supporting the most promising new research that has been missing addiction research. There really aren't foundations to help with that. And that's what Cure Addiction Now are hoping to do, is to support the most kind of innovative, breakthrough, potentially impactful work before it's ready for an NIH grant, for example. So I think it's a wonderful initiative, something we really need. So really, really trying to go for things that may not have the data to get that kind of funding, something that it's a little more risky, I guess, to say, okay, we're going to try this not, I don't want to say novel, is that the right word? But, you know, like, we're going to try this, we're, we're going to, we're going to throw a moonshot here to see if this works. It's exactly the case. In fact, I was just talking about this notion that drugs can act outside the brain, perhaps, and have the sensory effect that may be important. 
based on this literature with these GLP-1 modulators doing this, and based on what we know about how GLP-1 modulators work in the context of appetite regulation, a postdoc in my lab, in fact, she's just started her own lab just this past week, Stephanie Caliguri, has been funded by CAN, Cure Addiction Now, to ask that question. Is it the case that drugs can act outside the brain, opioids can act outside the brain, to perhaps trigger a signal that's important for their addictive properties? That is such an early stage project. It would, I think it would be right. kind of difficult to get it funded by a traditional funding mechanism without data to support that. What Cure Addiction Now are doing is just stepping in saying, okay, here's kind of a, a left field idea. Give it a shot. If it works, it's going to be really interesting. And then you can go for a full NIH application. And it's exactly that type of research where it's an interesting idea, but it may be early in the evolution where some early stage pilot funding would help. Right. And, and, and to get it going and get enough data to say, okay, we can pursue this. This actually shows some promise. Let's go for it. And we can do more robust studies and, and really dig in and deeper with some of that other funding. That's, that's yes. amazing. That's great. I love that because this is where we find new stuff. And, and like you said earlier, I mean, addiction is such a ravaging disease that just causes so much suffering and pain. Uh, like you said, you witnessed in, in those hospitals. It's so heartbreaking. So anything we can do to help with that is great. So let's talk a little bit about your clinical trial and, and what you're doing and what you're particularly looking at here and trying to find. Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't started. This is brand new. So we're in the we're, we're beginning to design the study right now. We're hoping to get it running as quickly as possible because God knows we need therapeutics for opioid use disorder. But the idea would be to see if the effects that have been reported for GLP modulators on alcohol use disorder, you know, alcohol craving and the amount of alcohol that's consumed, if the same will be the case in those who use opioids, either prescription opioids, you know, misuse of those or illicit opioids. And so hopefully what we would see would be a, a quelling of craving for these drugs, a decrease in use of these drugs. But also withdrawal is such a, an issue, opioids in particular, relative to other drugs of abuse. I'm very curious to see if withdrawal symptoms, which are a major problem also, if they're sensitive to GLP-1 modulation. So that's something that we'll, we'll certainly be trying to look at in our, our patient population. So how does this start to take place and, and what does this look like as you start to roll this out? Yeah, there's, um, I guess, unfortunately, there's a large patient population here in New York who suffer from opioid use disorder. Many of those patients are, or many of those individuals are actually patients at Mount Sinai. So the idea is that we recruit those individuals as they're being treated at Mount Sinai into clinical trial. And then we design the study where they're, uh, obviously, they get first-line therapeutics, We, you know, Everyone has to be treated. This is a terrible disorder. Buprenorphine is right. typically the first-line treatment. The question then would be if a GLP-1 modulator could potentially enhance the effects of buprenorphine or even by itself, at least for a short period of time, absent buprenorphine before patients are on that drug, if a GLP-1 modulator could have beneficial effects just by itself. And so we're looking for, as I say, standalone benefit or potentially enhancement of the therapeutic response that we know buprenorphine has. So it's a kind of perhaps a, a, a complex clinical trial design. That's why we're trying to design it yeah. properly right now. But if we could see benefits on top of buprenorphine, that would just be wonderful. That would be amazing. I mean, that mm -hmm. would be just because I, I, I think you, you had said part of this work is, you know, controlling those cravings and turning that off or slowing it down or even just muting it a little bit could be 
just what a relief for people. Yeah, and you know, there's systems in the brain that that control appetite, that control motivated behavior. And so the way we've been treating addiction till this point, because it works, at least in some individuals, is kind of attacking the primary site of action for drugs of abuse, like opioids. Well, they act on opioid receptors. Let's target the receptors. Methadone, for example, buprenorphine. But after the receptors have been activated, after those systems have been engaged, that information kind of converges onto motivation systems in the brain that influence our behavior. So the hope is that what we're doing is almost going downstream of the opioid receptor, downstream of the primary targets of nicotine or alcohol, and tapping into those circuits to actually transduce those effects into drug-seeking behaviors, drug use. And I'm I'm hopeful that that's what we'll see here, that we're tapping into those kind of deeper processes in the brain. And if that will work, then which other approaches can we take to accomplish the same thing? So in other words, I'm hoping that this is a horizon of a whole new Mm -hmm. generation, if you will, of of addiction therapeutics. Yeah, that that is like super exciting. I mean, I would think that, you know, for someone in recovery, you know, dealing with that motivational piece, it takes so much energy to try and quash that down, to try and control it. It just... It's all consuming. And if you just can quiet that piece, it allows individuals to put their mental energy into things that are going to be better for them because they're not dealing with just trying to quash, you know, the brain is yelling at them to do this behavior, engage in alcohol, food, whatever it is. And I would imagine it's so hard for someone to, you know, it's just, it's like always there calling them. And so, you know, if you quiet that down, then then they then they can do other things. They can, you know, pursue things that are meaningful in their life. They're not just trying to stop their body from doing something they don't want it to do. Yeah, I think the way you describe it is, is really it's exactly how I envision these disorders. It gets back to the point you made, I guess, when we first start talking about willpower, that people are addicted because they have no willpower because they like the effects of this drug or these drugs. Yeah, and that's it, just that's not, not the case. The drugs no. have this profoundly detrimental effect on your brain, on who you are as a person. They remodel you as an individual, and they become this kind of dominating force in your life. And you use them not because you want to, but you use them because really, it almost gets to the point where choice becomes difficult, incredibly mm-hmm. difficult. It's a loud yeah. voice screaming in your head that they become dominant and so if we could help people to quell that loud noise and help them focus on other beneficial good things in our life that would be amazing that would just be incredible it's it would just be a relief it would be such a relief and and just so beneficial i am so excited you're doing this work i i'm so thankful that you came on to the podcast to talk about it because it just brings a lot of hope and and possibility so yeah, I'm thankful that you're doing this work. This is really, really important. So anything else you, you want to add before you know, we're kind of coming up on our time? So anything else yeah. that you want to add or you think people should know? You know, one thing I think would be just to go back to cure addiction now because we're talking about the foundation. One of the things that's really been an impediment, I think, for a new medications development for treatments has been this notion of stigma. I mean, drug addictions are... And it gets back to willpower as well, that people are addicted because Mm -hmm. they have no willpower. It's not true. And addictions have been stigmatized for generations. And I think that that needs to change. 
I think that these are brain disorders that certain individuals have genetic vulnerabilities. There are other, of course, environmental factors, you know, one of the biggest risk factors, of course, is you come from an environment where it is low socioeconomic. You have low socioeconomic background. You don't have opportunities. All of that plays a role, but they're essentially disorders of stress. And stigma just make these things way, yeah. way worse. And that's why we don't Absolutely. have foundations. I think that's why we haven't had this high-profile initiative to fix these problems. Yeah. It needs to change. And if podcasts like this, your efforts here can help – I think that that would be an incredible service. We need to think about these things differently than how, how we have been thinking about them now for generations. It's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for saying that, Paul. I'd like to ask like one question at, at the end of the podcast as we wrap up. Maybe someone out there is struggling. Maybe they're having a hard time and you could tell them one thing. What would you want them to know? I would say that you're almost certainly not alone. Many, many people suffer in silence. The, the prevalence of substance use disorders is striking, shockingly high in the US. And I would encourage you to think of this not just as a personal failing, but as an issue of just basic pharmacology, an issue of, of biology. And it's okay. But it's okay, it's even more okay if you go and seek help for what is a legitimate disorder. And it gets to... Absolutely. It's not just other people who stigmatize addictions. It's people who suffer from stigmatized themselves. And we need to get over that. And I think if you reach out for help, invariably people benefit. It's a really hard disorder to get over if it's addiction to opioids, alcohol, smoking, even certain types of food. They're, they're hard things to recover from. It's even harder if you try and do it alone. So if you can muster the courage, the bravery to talk to family members, a treatment physician, a friend, that's the first step to really doing something about this. And you have to realize it is biology here. It's not a personal failing. It's something that happens. And we all have the potential for this to happen to us. So please be brave and seek that help. You'll, you'll hopefully benefit from it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Paul, for saying that. That is that is so meaningful. How can people find out more information? They want to get a hold of you. They want to find out about CAN. What can they do? Where can they go? I, I would encourage anyone who's interested really to go to the Cure Addiction Now website. So basically Google, if you will, Cure Addiction right. Now. It's, a lot of information is readily available. And in fact, Google me. I mean, my information is available at Mount Sinai. If I could answer any questions you may have, I'd be very happy to do so. I'd be happy to help refer you to some of the treatment individuals here if you want to talk to me about that at Mount Sinai, I should say. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of information available either about my lab and what we do and Cure Addiction now that's available online. So please reach out. Oh, thank you so much. I will put all the links in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. Paul, thank you so much for doing the work that you're doing and coming on and, and talking about this. Thank you for taking the time to listen and like i said if the very least they can do this could do is support cure addiction now and other foundations and help people reach out who may need help that would be a great day awesome thank you thank you all right everyone i hope you got a lot out of the addicted mind podcast as usual all the show notes will be at the addictedmind.com so you can check it out and if you've enjoyed this episode share with a friend and if you're getting a lot out of the addicted mind podcast please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help the podcast get found by others. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day and I will talk to you on the next episode.
I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.